Quick disclaimer, although what we say is evidence and literature-based, we don't know your personal details and situation. Therefore, make sure you're discussing these things with your doctor. Welcome to the CPR for Life podcast. I am Sagar Doshi, boarded and practicing lifestyle medicine physician and emergency medicine physician, joined by Zach Hermosis, boarded and practicing emergency physician and practicing lifestyle medicine physician. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you guys are doing well out there. We have a really interesting topic today with me and Zach. We're going to talk about stress and performance. I love this one. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics. Um, not because I'm like a stellar performer or anything. It's just I try to relate this to my life in this, you know, whatever. We'll talk about it. But before we get started, just to put it out there one more time, is that if you are feeling stressed, there are lots of good, healthful strategies on coping with it. And one good one, really good one, supported by literature, is mindfulness. And we've recently opened up a course for that, both self-paced and workshop-based. So check it out, cprhealthclinic.com slash mindfulness. But let's get into this. Yeah, so the, I can't promise that the mindfulness class is going to teach you how to be uh, the warrior soldier that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman talks about in his book on combat. So I read this book, Sagar. I know you've you've read this book too. Um, it's a long time ago. Yeah, it was some time for me too. But I reviewed it. It's it's a really it's just an interesting book. And if you have some time, I guess pick it up and check it out. Dave Grossman did not contact us to to plug his book here. This is all independent, <laughs> just to be full totally and transparent. Yes, just to also put that out there, he is a controversial figure. We don't agree with the things that he has said in general. We're just talking about this book, and right? The topic of this book. On Combat is a book that basically looks at performance of soldiers under stress. There are some studies, there's some actual literature that's done, performed by uh, Dave Grossman and a couple of his colleagues in the book uh, that looks at, yeah, how do people respond? What's the physiological response? Uh, what happens to your heart rate, your blood pressure, your performance when you've got things going on that are effectively, uh, directly affecting you at that moment? Now, this doesn't really look at there are some long-term ramifications of these things, and we'll talk about that, about performance um, when you're chronically stressed. But in the meantime, this kind of mostly talks about acute stress. And this apply. I think one of the reasons that I liked it in the first place, and, and Sagi, you tell me why you read it, but going to emergency medicine, you know, we, we sometimes see some things that will get your heart rate up and make you very uncomfortable, things that we've never seen before. If you've got a patient that's, you know, got an upper GI bleed and vomiting blood, and you're trying to get an airway on them, it can be very, very stressful or whatever, there's about 10,000 different things we can think of. And, and certainly not to the level of taking heavy fire or stepping on a mine or anything like that did not to equate those two to make them the same. But the point is, there are times when you get stressed, and you need to be able to calm yourself down rapidly to be able to get something done uh, in a in a fashion that um, where calm leads to good outcomes. Does that sound about right? Yeah, or just to summarize it, if you know how to deal with stress, and when you can expect it, then you're going to make better decisions. Right. So one of the things that they talk about is tactical breathing, which I've used. And basically, you're taking slow, deep breaths and kind of pausing at the end and letting your vagal response kick in a little bit. And your vagal response will slow down your heart rate, will slow down your breathing, slow, and drop your blood pressure and kind of help you focus. And the reason that that's important is because when you get overly amped, if your sympathetic nervous system, which we've talked about in a previous podcast, but to summarize again, is part of your autonomic nervous system that is responsible for your fight or flight response. So when you're confronted with a danger or a very stimulating situation where you need to be able to get your heart rate and blood pressure up quick so you can act quickly and re redirect blood flow to your muscles, 
That's your sympathetic nervous system telling you, hey, it's time to fight, it's time to run. If it gets really bad, it's time to freeze, uh, which is obviously deleterious and, and bad. But the point is, you sometimes want to get that down, uh, especially if you need fine motor control. So Dave Grossman did a study with one of his colleagues in 1997, and they looked at the psychological effects on combat. And so they, what they basically did was they clarified five different zones of heart rate and performance, uh, white, yellow, red, gray, black. Um, and as you can imagine, white being the calmest, black being game time uh, type mode. So in situation white, you'd be normal resting heart rate. You're basically vulnerable. You're at home and you're not really expecting any danger. Uh, yellow is your, you have basic alertness. Um, it's more of a psychological difference than a physical difference from situation white. You just kind of aware that you may come into some danger. Red uh, is where you have your, what they described as an optimum survival and combat performance, but you start sacrificing some of your fine motor skills uh, for more gross motor skill performance. Section gray uh, is usually your complex skills have broken down. Um, your cognitive processing skills break down, your heart rate is getting up, and then black is usually, it's irrational. You're in total fight or flight mode. Uh, you don't really know what's going on. Uh, you are just trying to survive at that point. Yeah, so gray is stuff is starting to hit the fan, and black is the point where I don't even know what's happening. Right. Looking at what they, they tried to kind of quantify, which is the best for each area. Uh, so yellow, for example, um, they want a lot of their pilots here, hostage negotiation, negotiators, bomb technicians, uh, people who need their fine motor skills. And the reason why is because once you start getting into red, um, so red is your heart rate's they say between 115 and 145. There's some variation here because these are tested on in shape uh, military people who tend to be young and healthy. And obviously, you know, if you're 75 years old, your heart rate at 145 is a lot different than if your heart rate's 145 <laughs> at 22 years old. Yeah. Uh, so, so take that with a little bit of a uh, of caution. But um, so you don't want those people at you know your people who are doing fine motor skills in the red zone because you're starting to lose some complex motor skills at that point. So once your heart rate hits 140, 145. You're not able to, you know, you're not doing surgery, uh, for example. If your heart rate's up that high, you're starting to be a little bit a little bit clumsy with your fingers, but your gross motor skills are actually going to be pretty solid. You know, your strength is going to be probably at its peak. Your uh, your um, conditioning is probably going to be at its peak, uh, and you're still going to be able to have ability to think cognitively about what's going on. Yeah. I have a good, maybe not good, but I have a, a story, a witnessed event where that just played out really well. And it was with a patient that came in the trauma bay, couldn't get an airway whatsoever, meaning breathing was becoming a problem. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so we called an anesthesia and anesthesia still could not get the airway. And so breathing is now more of a problem. And so luckily there's a surgeon there at the bedside, two kinds of surgeons, one young one, she's in her first year. The other one, old one, been very experienced. And so they were putting in a surgical airway in the neck, so making the hole. It's very interesting just to stand back and watch as the young one had shaking hands, trying to mm -hmm. make cuts, trying to move a wire in and out, and just how clumsy it looked, mm -hmm. right? And then the elder experienced one was still very adept and just kind of doing one thing at a time, very smooth, very calm, and quick. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you bring that up because so they start 
looking at the gray zone, heart rate 145 to 180, and they will see people's complex skills break down right around there. And this older surgeon probably did not have a heart rate of 145 to 180, but let's say that that person did. They've actually looked at stress acclimatization. So basically they expose you to stress over and over again, um, but you can still maintain your fine motor skills if it's a learned behavior that you've done over and over and over again that you don't have to think about. But if you think about the behavior that you're doing or, the, or whatever you're doing, you actually start to break down a bit. So those are the people who get tunnel vision. You lose your depth perception. Uh, you get auditory exclusion. So there are a lot of people like in gunfights who their heart rate's that high and they don't remember hearing gunshots. A lot of people have ringing in their ears afterward, but they're like, I don't remember. It's probably why you hear a lot of stories about people who were in combat situations or life-threatening situations where a gun was fired. They don't remember how many how many gunshots they fired because they're like, oh, I don't know, three or four. And it turns out they fired, you know, 14 uh, because they don't even... They're not even there anymore. But the uh, one of the interesting things that they looked at was they looked at green berets and put them in a combat scenario where they put them in close quarters combat uh, and they had, I guess what they did is they put them in a very dark situation and it was strange sounds, strange lights, uh, and they had them be attacked by people who were also well-trained. So they found that the people who performed best, their heart rate was about 175 because these were pretty routine things that they went through and they were able to uh, basically... Uh, muscle memory their way through most of their their moves and techniques to restrain the other person. However, the people who didn't train with zip ties uh, couldn't get their people in restraints very easily. So people who are normally had pre-tied zip ties and they had practiced putting people in restraints did just fine and they didn't have any issues. But if they didn't practice with that or they didn't pre-tie their zip tie, they had a difficult time getting zip ties on people. And that's not even all that difficult if you think about it. I mean, it's just a little something in a hole and pull. But when your heart rate's 175... It is. That's true. And it's probably dark in there. Um, but if, if they weren't trained, they, they had to think about what they were doing and they, they performed worse at that part of it. So yeah, you can stress acclimatize yourself to be able to deal with these things. Um, but you would argue how many people that on an everyday basis are going to see a scenario in which they've trained and rehearsed that they have that great of muscle memory for something that would get your heart rate up to 145 to 180 just on fear and stress alone. It's probably not very common. And then you get to situation black uh where your heart rate is usually above 175 and this is where you have irrational fight or flight um and the freezing and what, what they describe as submissive behavior because again i think you're just so overwhelmed you don't really know what to do these are the people who, when you asked in the last podcast about losing your bowel and bladder these are the people who lose their bowel and bladder when, they're, when their heart rate is that high your catecholamine surge is so high that even your gross motor skills your legs are wobbly you can't you can't even do things that you would otherwise normally do without even thinking about it uh that's this group of people and this is what you really want to avoid and and I think even in the ER, I, I don't I don't see myself ever getting to that level, you know, taking care of a patient who's sick. Um, you know, there are times when yeah. you know, imagine the, a kid, <laughs> right? I, honestly, that that's probably the <laughs> scariest situation for us. Is you know, but now imagine more than one kid. <laughs> yeah, right. Things that you these are the nightmare scenarios that you never want to be in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I, the the one situation I can think of is when uh. I had a patient who, she was doing very poorly and I couldn't figure out why. And she kept dropping her blood pressure and we couldn't get an IV on her. So I had to put a central line in. And a central line is kind of those big lines you often see in people's necks when they're in the ICU and they have a couple of different lumens and they have a couple of different tubes that are leading in there to get multiple medications in. They take some time to put in. They're not the, as quick as just putting in a peripheral IV. So I laid this woman flat to do this, to do this procedure. And she starts getting worse. Her blood pressure starts dropping, her heart rate's dropping. And 
meanwhile, I've still got the ultrasound on her neck and I, I haven't even gotten into the vein yet with to even start the procedure. And it still takes, you know, another five, six minutes from there once you get in. So I remember thinking to myself, uh, her heart rate's dropping and her heart rate's dropping. Mine's rising <laughs> because I'm, I'm like, OK, well, this isn't going to end well. You're I'm, taking I'm all getting, the beats. Right. Yeah, I'm taking it all away from her, I guess. But uh, I did this. I, I did kind of the, the tactical breathing thing and I just started kind of reciting to myself slowest, smooth, and smoothest fast, which is a very common thing that, you know, Rich Levitan teaches that in his airway course, that slowest, smooth, and smoothest fast, and just kind of a way to bring my heart rate down, kind of something that is repetitive to me and, and is, helps me refocus and I was able to, you know, stop being so anxious and get the line, and she did just fine. Uh, but there was a time period there where I was getting pretty uncomfortable, and I had to talk myself down in order to get my heart rate back down in order to regain my fine fine motor control. Um but yeah, so we, we do see it and having personally experienced it, I, I remember reading this book and being like, well, that makes sense. Yeah. And that's where having knowledge like this can really come in handy. Knowledge of being able to step back and say, what is happening inside me right now? Mm -hmm. Oh, I see what's happening. What do I need to do to address this? Oh, I'll do some tactical breathing. Mm -hmm. I've trained for this. I've practiced what I'm going to do when I get super stressed. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, we... Yeah, having known this was, I think, a huge, a huge benefit for me, uh, and that's why I would recommend this again, not necessarily this book, but this idea of knowing how to talk yourself down. I think is really helpful. Yeah, because I can just imagine if you or somebody else was in a different position and wasn't able to take that semi step back or just ground themselves for the moment, the immediate reaction might be, "Oh, let me just move faster." Yeah, and then now you're just stabbing. And not hitting where you need to hit, or maybe forgetting a step, all leading to problems. And for all of you people who don't know where that central line goes, in this case, her internal jugular vein, right next to that is the carotid artery. And we really, really don't want to start poking around with that. Yeah, that's the uh, neck. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's important to know what you're doing and to not lose control. Uh, and it's a, it's a safe procedure if it's done, you know, well and under control and the person who's done it knows how to do it. But yeah, it's not something you want to just start saying, oh, I just need to move faster and just start jamming a needle in somebody's neck. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so taking a step back to most of our lives, uh, not soldiers or people who are going to, again, uh, be under attack so much so that their heart rate is going to be jacked up that high. Uh, there was a, there was a 2001, uh, wow, 2011 study, um, called job stress, a job performance and organizational commitment in a multinational company, an empirical study in two countries. And it was a Canadian study that looked at, uh, a country with bases in Malaysia and Pakistan. And they had a validated job stress questionnaire and a validated uh, job performance uh, assessment by one of their superiors or the people that they were looking at. And what they found was a negative linear relationship uh, between stress and performance. So as stress increased, performance decreased. There was previous to this, and there are, uh, again, studies that look at multiple, uh, multiple ways of viewing this, whether there's a U-shaped relationship. So sometimes people will say, um, if there's no stress in a job, you're not really motivated to do anything. So your performance gets worse. And then with some stress, you get better. And then if there's more stress, you get worse again. Um, which is probably true in some industries. I would imagine, I guess you need some motivation to be able to do what you need to do. Um, challenge, right. You know, that if you're too understimulated, you don't work hard, which is again, probably some, some truth to that, but yeah. Um, and I don't know if this is culture-based, you know, these are Malaysian, Pakistan, or job type-based, or industry-based, or what, there's probably a ton of things that, that go into that. But it's hard to find many studies in, in what I was seeing that would suggest that there's a 
positive linear relationship, meaning more stress equals better performance. That's usually not the case. Usually performance is suffering at the hands of stress. Um, and then usually there's a sweet spot is what I'm hearing. Sometimes, uh, in this study, no, there was no sweet spot. The less stressed they were, the better. Yeah. And, but there are studies that do suggest there is a sweet spot. Um, it just wasn't this one. Uh, and then there was another study in 1990 in a journal of educational psychology. They basically looked at a study of students and their stress and performance. And basically the more control that students perceived that they had over their time, um, and the less stress they felt at work, the better evaluations they had in, in the form of grades and evaluations from their professors in college. But yeah, you can, you can imagine that that's probably the case. I mean, I can't imagine very many college students are like, yeah, I love being stressed and I perform so much better on my tests when I feel awful. Uh, and I think yeah. that's, that's pretty inherent. I have better recollection and problem solving abilities when my heart is beating real fast and the room is getting narrower and smaller. Right. Right. But, and again, there's probably some stress acclimatization that goes with that. I mean, you look at like when we were in, I don't know how much you simulation stuff you did in residency, but when I was in residency, my simulation director was also my, my faculty mentor and he was a simulation trained guy, but he was also in the military. Um, very go get him type, type guy. Loved him. He did, a, he did an awesome job, but he would put us through these, these simulation techniques of basically make it very, very stressful. I mean, when you're intubating, you know, he'd turn up the volume of the monitor as it was blaring in your ear. And so you'd hear the patient was not doing well. And he'd be sitting next to you going, the patient is dying. The patient is dying. What are you going to do about it? And you're just sitting there trying to get an airway that's supposed to be a difficult airway or you're, you know, managing. Just to clarify, is this on the mannequin or is yes. this on real people? This is simulation. Okay. Yes. Just, um, just wanted yeah, to know. No, they don't, they're not, like, <laughs> training in this country is not that cool where they're going to make sure the patients die. <laughs> no, in, in real life, you would not have let me uh, mess around that long. But this is when I was very early on in my training. And he would do that to all of us. He would put you through these just incredibly stressful situations and try to jack up your heart rate and blood pressure um, to the point where at the end of our residency, we would run a code blindfolded. And so you'd have to be making the calls on your own and you'd have to trust what your team was telling you. But all of those beeping and noises and all those things that usually would stress you out and hearing that the patient's about to code or their blood pressure dropping or whatever, blindfolded, you could run through it because you've done it so many times and you're not stressed at all about it that you can just say, okay, let's do this medicine. I want atropine. I want a transvenous pace or whatever you want to do um, that you can take care of a patient blindfolded. And I think that that's translated well for, I mean, I, I don't, there are very many situations in the ER. I don't think that stress me out. Uh, and part of it's probably because I was run through this. I mean, he, we also did simulations where we like walked in, there was, you know, bomb explosion and stuff. Like he did a really interesting job uh, in making sure that we were very stressed during, <laughs> during training. <laughs> and it was good for us, I think, um, cause you get used to it. I mean, obviously I don't want to do that every single day, but when we did, it was kind of like, short okay, it's term. go time. Yeah. yeah right. Sh- short term stress. And that just leads me into thinking, I mean, I think we've talked about our jobs at nauseum, but there are other fields out there that have to deal with high stress loads on a routine basis that you do not want um, ignorant to their stress and you want them to be able to know how to handle it. Like, for example, pilots have to deal with this, I would imagine, on a daily basis that something can go terribly wrong. For example, an engine can explode and then you have to land the plane without an engine or maybe it's on fire. Yeah. And like 99% of the time, their job's like, boring and easy and there's nothing to do it seems like at least i mean you know i've reflected i've been been (laughs) right it's very routine and nothing ever goes wrong but you know and i love listening to those 
to those uh those recordings of some of those people like you know sully in in new york and like you know they they hit a bunch of birds and his engines are out and it's just like the engine's out (laughs) the plane and like the the plane's like about to crash and they're just like all right we're dropping the blah 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 and you're just like how how are they that calm i'd be freaking out like a bunch like 300 people on your plane are about to die and you're just like oh yeah okay well uh we're gonna get this plane landed (laughs) (laughs) they're screaming from behind that door right yeah i I don't know it's so and and the air traffic controller same thing they're always so calm um Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you know or you know whatever i mean first responders um you know, military, all those people, you just hear some of the recordings, you, you don't often hear them panicking. Uh, and it's just, I think it's just because they've been inoculated to it. Yeah. But if you do hear them panicking, well, now you've got to worry. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When those people are worrying, you know, it's time to freak out. Yeah. If that there is panic, if someone has not trained up or for something is going so terribly wrong that they're panicked, that bad things are actually going to happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hate listening to some people uh, I'll see a video here and there or listen to something here and there and they'll deal with stress by just asking people to reflect listen if you make a mistake really what's the worst that could happen no bad things bad things can happen this is not a solution <laughs> this is not yeah that's true there, there are certain t- like yeah if you're like baking cookies usually it's yeah. like okay the cookies won't come out right but um, yeah there are there are some certain high stakes scenarios in which when you make a mistake some some bad things do happen yeah it's just a piece not to of cata- not to catastrophize however right. that is a reality <laughs> yeah just lay it out so what is important my question is all right we know that stress short term at a low level can be very helpful you can inoculate yourself and with enough training so that you know how to deal with it in the future but is there anything else that can help us improve our performance uh I mean, you look at like these, if you're talking about like a day-to-day performance, uh, you know, for most people who have the average level of stress, people like you and me, um, yeah, I mean, mindfulness is going to help out with that and recognizing your stressors, uh, you know, finding a place, you know, good relationships, which we're going to talk about in some of our other, and in another podcast is actually a, a huge one. People with poor relationships, you know, report higher levels of stress and poor health outcomes and, um poor outcomes at work. It, it, those are probably the, the two main ones. I mean, there, there's a, a whole slew of things that go into how to take care of yourself from a stress standpoint, whether that's, you know, exercise and eating properly, um, you know, finding finding time for self-reflection and meditation. Again, that's kind of the whole mindfulness thing. But yeah, there are things you can do. Okay. What do you do? My f- number one thing is, is hang out with my wife. I mean, Nina's really good at dealing with me when I'm stressed, um, <laughs> which I I try to, I don't get very stressed frequently that I can tell. She can usually tell before I can, uh, when I'm stressed, but then I, I exercise, I try to maintain, you know, I try to eat right and, you know, spend time with friends and family. I, you know, I spend time in prayer, like whatever it is, um, that I can actually spend, spend time to deconstruct why I'm stressed. Usually it's hard for me sometimes to recognize when I'm stressed. Uh, and I think that's just because I don't like to admit it more than anything else. Uh, I have mm-hmm. a little bit of, I'm like, oh, I can handle anything. Um, which is probably very common among people with what we do. <laughs> um, I would argue that it's common, just people. That's probably true. <laughs> we all probably like to true. just assume 
we can handle anything. And then once the awareness that settles in, that perhaps there are things that we are getting stressed out about. That's the golden window of opportunity to actually start making some changes in your life to actually deal with these stressors in a constructive way and not in a detrimental way. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, the idea that you can't handle something is probably a little bit overstated. The idea that, yeah, just because you have have been stressed by something does not mean that you're not handling it or that you can't handle it. Uh, it's only problematic if you are not handling the stress and, and dealing with the the impetus for your stress in the first place. What do you do? I make great use of mindfulness. I do a morning meditation every day that I can that work doesn't interfere or kids don't interfere. Because <laughs> <laughs> often I'll, if I'm at work and I'm trying to find time to meditate because I will work a 24-hour shift, mm-hmm. sometimes it's just really busy and that goes out the window. And other times I'll be at home and it'll be morning meditation before the kids get up. I'm getting it in there and suddenly I'll hear, I'm all done and why went poo-poo. That's my signal that my time is over and I have to go and deal with the toilet situation. So, But that's the big thing. We're really spending time with family and getting outside, getting someplace where I can see trees and greenery. Uh, those yeah. are the keys for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that's the thing. I think even recognizing that not everybody necessarily has the same way of being mindful or dealing with stress, but recognizing so and learning many what... Ways. Yeah, You're so right. many strategies. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and all those things will lead to better performance and better enjoyment of life and, again, better health outcomes, which we'll talk about, of course, in other podcasts. But, yeah, 100% uh, these things matter. Yeah. So does it also apply to everyday scenarios like public speaking? Uh, the number one know, fear in the world? <laughs> which is, I know. <laughs> and I'm not saying I'm good at public speaking, but that's a little funny. Um, well... I don't know if there's any study that says chronic stress and public speaking are related. I know that this works for public speaking. I mean, I've had to do public speaking in the past, and I don't particularly enjoy it any more than anybody else. But I've used these same, you know, tactical breathing techniques and, you know, I'm much more comfortable resuscitating a patient near death than I am public speaking. So <laughs> I probably have to do it more for That's this. A like I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm used to that. Uh, and I'm not used to talking in public. But I would imagine the same techniques would work as far as the acute stress reduction. You know, deep deep breaths and, you know, focusing on what's going on and um, taking your, your focus and putting it on one specific thing and kind of using that as a uh, an anchor. I, I'm sure it would work. I, I've used those things myself and they tend to work. Yeah. Yeah, that all sounds really helpful. I'll just throw in there. There's also room for... I almost just knocked my liquid-filled cup right off the desk onto the floor. So that was a little stressful, but now I'm calm again. (laughs) (laughs) Deep breath, Sagar, deep breath. (laughs) Anyway, so there is room for reinterpretation too, because if you think about the stress that comes with public speaking, uh, there's people that will use the technique of simply reinterpreting that high heart rate, the stimulation of their sympathetic nervous to say, no, this isn't nervousness. This is excitement. This is energy. This is fuel for a better mm-hmm. performance. Mm-hmm. So that's out there too. Yeah. 
That's a good point. Do you know anything about athletes or physical performance with anything stress-related? You know, one of the things that I like to talk about, uh, being a former athlete, I wish that I had known these techniques then. Um, But when I read about, for anybody who's a fan of sports or the NBA, LeBron James, when he had struggled early on in his career in fourth quarter of games, uh, would miss free throws or miss shots, or people say that he would shrink in big moments. Uh, And if you look at him now, despite your feelings on the guy as far as a basketball player goes he's definitely one of the better players of all time in late games in his performance and shooting percentages and all that fun stuff but one of the things i remember reading he went to saw a sports psychologist and what they did was they played over and over again for him to watch all of his failures uh in big stages of the game um where he'd miss a layup or pass when he should have shot or whatever um and apparently it was trying to reinforce in him some behavior of being able to see that and not have an emotional reaction to it and not become amped mm. and be fearful of failure anymore. Uh, so by striking out the fear of him, which I guess you could say is striking out the sympathetic nervous system response that you'd want him. I mean, you got to think a professional athlete, you know, doing fine motor things does not want to be in condition gray. He wants to be, you know, in condition yellow and maybe at times in condition red. But, you know, shooting a basketball is a fine motor skill. So he doesn't need to be, you know, before taking the big shot, having his heart rate get up to 160 because he's nervous or scared or 150 because he's worried about missing the shot. And so I I guess it was shortly after that he became very, very good. So I, I guess I can't say with certainty that that's what helped, but it seems like it would make sense that if you can condition yourself to not respond in a fearful manner to those situations and not get amped up, you would conceivably perform better. Yeah, so reinterpret failure. Right. Right. But yeah, I don't know of any other ones, but I'm sure there are plenty. Well, there's an entire field of sports psychology, apparently. Right. So I'm sure they have more than one trick. <laughs> yeah. More than uh, yeah. one. When, it, when, it, when you're a multi-billion dollar industry, I think that you uh, you want to spend a lot of money to make sure your guys are performing at, the, at their peak. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to talk about today? No, I think that's it. We've got, we've got plenty more of these coming. So um, we'll discuss some more specifics later on. This was fun. Just putting it out there one more time, check out our website, cprhealthclinic.com, and our other part of the website, cprhealthclinic.com slash mindfulness, which is a really potent strategy for how to deal with stress. In the meantime, take care out there, and remember, the way you live can save your life. <laughs>